So we are working our way through preaching some psalms this season. Therefore, I have the blessing of being able to preach to you from Psalm 32, what we just read together. I love that we read it together because it's really a psalm and a song, a prayer for us. And I want to begin by asking a question. And that question is, have you ever noticed that in suspense movies, before things start ramping up, Someone always decides that now would be a great moment to put a tea kettle on the stove. You know what I'm saying? It's like this cliche thing that seems to happen in every single suspense movie. That before things are about to happen, somebody's got to fill it with water and put it on the stove. Why? Because as the music sort of ramps up and the strings start playing and things get crazy, someone barges in is about to attack or something like that. The tea kettle is boiling and it's screeching, right? The screeching tea kettle, the cliche and the hallmark of the suspense movie. It's also a symbol of every last human being's monthly, weekly, and daily experience. Tension. The bottled up life. Pushed down, packed in. Sometimes that tension feels like a low-grade boil. And sometimes that tension feels like it's screeching at fever pitch. Every last one of us feels the pressure of the stuff inside. Last Friday, I was laughing my way through YouTube clips of the greatest comedian of all time, the preeminent one, Chris Farley. Chris Farley's whole shtick, the explosive temperamental fat guy, is what made his many characters on Saturday Night Live great. We're all laughing because we're remembering with passionate memory who he was, right? Why is it that we have such an easy time laughing at Farley's red-faced, sweaty, button-popping rage? It's actually the same reason that makes all comedy great. The best comedy always holds a mirror up to us, forcing us to face who we really are. We laugh because it's funny. We laugh deeply because it's true. And there's something painfully cathartic about being able to laugh at our own brokenness. All of us are Chris Farley. We may not have explosive tempers like anger in the movie Inside Out, but we're all pent up. We've all got stuff inside that doesn't seem to want to stay in despite our best efforts. Psychological textbooks like the DSM-5 that I imagine some of you are studying right now. Chronicle pathology after pathology, all built upon the unassailable reality that holding stuff inside ultimately destroys us, right? Psalm 32 is a prayer for the bottled up, a song for the stuffed up life. You know, death is an interesting moment when the stuffed up life usually gets unstuffed. We all know people in their old age. Maybe some of us are those people who seem to just sort of let it all out in their senior years. We all joke about the old man and the old woman that just doesn't seem to care anymore. Maybe that's grandpa. Maybe that's grandma. And again, maybe that's some of you. Death and dying does that. It unleashes us. It unleashes what's been inside. And the reality that Psalm 32 is a psalm for the stuffed up life is evidenced by the fact that St. Augustine himself, one of the great heroes of Christianity, is reported to have had this very psalm written on the wall over his bed that he was laying in while he was dying. 
Psalm 32 actually answers the question, why? Why is your life, my life, stuffed up and pent up? God says to us here and now, it's because we haven't come clean. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And there it is. There it is. The great pressure release valve of the compression of life. Confession. Let's talk about confession for a little bit. You and I have a built-in pressure release valve in our liturgy, right? Each and every week. It's called the confession of sin. But the words are only as good as they become not just the words on your lips, but the prayer of your heart. The beautiful thing about our confessions are that when they're prayed sincerely, they really do have a way of searching your heart like the sentinels in the matrix, burrowing into those deep, forgotten caverns, those bottled up places. But again, you and I need to grant it access by leaning into the language and making it our own. In addition to the liturgy, however, confession to God is helpful when it moves beyond Sundays and into a daily habit. I often find myself, probably six to ten times a day, which is not often enough, just stopping and saying either out loud or in my head, Lord, have mercy, forgive me for these thoughts. Or, oh man, God, I messed up again. I'm sorry, forgive me. I will tell you from experience myself, with myself and others, these kinds of moments are like turning the pressure release valve. It relieves some of the tension. It lets the air out. But so far, I've just talked about confession to God. I think for some of us, though, the reason we may not find that the tension is being released is that sometimes confession to God really must take the form of confession to one another. Maybe if you're feeling bottled up still, perhaps it's because you haven't come clean to the person that you've actually sinned against. When that's the case, confession to God can feel just hollow. The pressure didn't release. Sometimes, confession to God looks like confession to your neighbor or to your spouse, to your roommate or to your coworker, to your friend or to your enemy or to your ex. If you still doubt that it's this kind of stuff that's really at the heart of your anxiety and tension, let me prove it to you with Exhibit A, family gatherings at holidays, okay? So tense, so much subtext to every conversation, right? So much pent up in everyone's heart. It's why people experience depression after the holidays. It's why psychotherapists see an uptick in their clientele in January. Why is that? Well, it's because our family members are often the ones that we sin against and have sinned against more than anyone else. And all the dysfunction gets amplified and compressed through the years of connection without confession. 
And so allow the Word of God to teach us why confession is so necessary for the pent-up life. There's no other way to experience grace and peace, yes, forgiveness, without confession. Why? Because until sin, wrongdoing, and brokenness are acknowledged, there's no need for grace. The only kind of person who needs grace and forgiveness is the kind of person who has blown it. If you haven't blown it, you don't need grace. The words, I forgive you, are the words that free us. They are the words that release the pressure. But acknowledging our sin is the only way that you and I can get to those words. There's no other way. God's grace will only appear as bright to you as your sinfulness is black. Confession is the black backdrop on which the star of mercy comes to us in blinding brilliance. God's grace will only appear to you as high as your sinfulness shows you as low. Confession is the deep valley from which we look up to see the Himalayan peak of God's amazing grace. And in case we think there's another way to relieve all this pressure in life without the admittedly painful act of confession, God even offers a gentle fatherly warning, a pleading in verse 9. He says, Be not like the horse and the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. In other words, God is saying, Go willingly to the safe house of confession. Don't put me in a position of having to force it because your bones will waste away. My hands, which are supposed to be your cradle, will feel like a vice grip until you yield. Psalm 32 is identified by some scholars as what's called a wisdom psalm. What this means is that in ancient Near Eastern poetry, the time when this Hebrew poetry was written, wisdom literature is that body of writing that offers reflection on what philosophers nowadays and ancient philosophers called the good life. Telltale signs that were in wisdom literature territory are phrases called beatitudes, like what we see in verses 1 and 2. Blessed, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Wisdom literature also carries instruction, like verses 8 and 9, where it's talking about don't be like the horse and the mule with its bit and bridle that's sort of keeping you in place. That's instruction, it's admonition. But there's another central feature of Hebrewism that's uh, the constant contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous, the godly and the ungodly. And it's with this framework that we look to the contrast that's in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. See the contrast? Many times in wisdom literature, and certainly in ancient ethics beyond Hebrew scriptures, this is how it's divvied up between the wicked and the righteous. The wicked one is the one who does wicked things. And the godly one is the one who does godly things. But here, the wicked are sorrowful because their wickedness is bottled up, unreleased by confession. 
And the godly isn't someone who doesn't do wicked things. But on the contrary, the godly one is the wicked person who has learned to release their sin to God and in turn found God's steadfast love surrounding them. I love this word, surround. It's an important word in this passage. It appears twice. And it actually has a double meaning. We need to think of being surrounded by God first as we would think of military conquest. You're surrounded. You're trapped on all sides. You have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. God's hand is heavy upon you and your bones will waste away. How many people, how many people in this room, how many people in this world are stuck here, resisting God, surrounded, but refusing to give in, refusing to confess the things that are pent up inside? Lord, have mercy. But when the surrender finally happens, and when the cathartic confessional hands go up, that's when surround takes on a whole new meaning. Because all of a sudden, God's mighty army that was facing in on you and bearing down does an about-face. And they turn outward and they stand their guard. The very love that has conquered your soul has become your defense. God surrounds you now not to attack, but to defend against outside assaults. He surrounds you now with shouts of deliverance. And all the attacks of guilt and all the shame that are constantly repelled by the the words forgiven, covered, forgotten, forever. Rod Rosenblatt, a friend of the Advent and a Lutheran pastor, tells this story. Perhaps you've heard it before. A woman came to her pastor, racked with grief. She had been keeping a secret, holding inside her shame. Years ago, she had had an abortion. Perhaps at that moment, she thought that time would eventually dull the sharp sting of guilt. But time had elapsed, and in the words of the psalmist, her bones were wasting away. God's hand was heavy upon her. She couldn't undo the past. As she poured out her heart to her pastor, she said, He said this, you know, we have a service for this. And so they walked through a simple liturgy together, specific enough to let her confess what was inside and release it to the Lord. It was a liturgy of confession and forgiveness. After they walked through the liturgy together, no doubt with careful tears and heartfelt sincerity, I mean, how can you fake it in a moment like this? Their prayers were over. I imagine that words like these were still swirling in the woman's heart. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, So far have I removed your transgressions from you to remember your sins no more. Preparing to depart, the woman turned and thanked the pastor. And then she said to him, maybe now I finally have the courage to tell others about my abortion. The pastor paused and he looked her in the eye and he said, what abortion?
I invite you now to look with me at Jesus Christ hanging on a cross for my sin and for your sin. Hear him say these words over you now. Blessed are you. I bless you, my brother, my sister. Your transgression is forgiven. I bless you, my friend. Your sin is covered. I bless you. I count no iniquity against you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgression from you to remember your sin no more. Amen.